Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Today's episode of Wittenberg to Westphalia is brought to you by the brave souls who have selflessly sent their hard-earned money out onto the plains of PayPal in the service of our disreputable proto-statelet. In return, they are granted titles and honors. Today we thank Dan, who shall hereafter be known as Dan Tebringer, and may his face ever fill his enemies with fear of leaf-juice-related death. I am fond of Oolong myself. We also recognize Kristaps, who shall hereafter be known as Kristaps Mighty Feast. If you'd like to join Dan and Kristaps in having a snarky regnal name, chosen more or less at random by me, head over to the website, wittenbergtowestphalia.weebly.com, and head over to the store. Your fully secure PayPal donation will help the show with server costs and bizarrely expensive books. If you have no money, you may choose to go the route of the Troubadour and write a review on iTunes. As Steve Jobs' ghost holds podcasting in its icy grip, written reviews on iTunes are an excellent way to get the word out. Even if you just want to drop a line via email or the Facebook page, please do so. Feedback helps me further the delusion that my hard work on this podcast somehow justifies my existence, and helps me to look away from the terrifying void that surrounds us all. So thanks in advance! Guten Abend und herzlich willkommen zu von Wittenberg bis Westfalen. At least, that's what it would sound like if I ran the show, which means you're lucky I don't. I'm Travis Dow from History of Germany and Bohemian Podcasts, and you are listening to Wittenberg to Westphalia. Enjoy! Take it away, Ben! Everyone's right, and no one is sorry. That's the start and the end of the story From the sharks and the jets to the call in the morning Hello and welcome to From Wittenberg to Westphalia, The Wars of the Reformation. My name is Benjamin Jacobs, and this is episode 15, Walking Tour Part 9, Central Europe. Here we are, folks, the start of the last section of the walking tour. This is a big moment, but we aren't done yet, so let's save the fine words and trembling lips until the whole thing is in the rearview mirror. Let's begin, as is our wont, by defining the parameters of this Central European region. To cheat a bit, Central Europe is what's left over after you take out all the other regions we've discussed. In the west, it bounds Greater France at the Rhine River. In the north, it's bounded by the North Sea, the Baltic, and that entirely arbitrary line I discussed in episode 5 that divides Central Europe from Jutland and Scandinavia. In the east, the region is bounded somewhat lamely by the Vistula River, and less lamely in the southeast by the Carpathian Mountains. In the south are the Alps, in all their mighty snowy majesty. 
I've actually somehow managed to avoid giving a good description of the topography of the Alps themselves in our series. As opposed to the insane jumble of the Balkans, the Alps quite clearly represent a single massive impact. If you look at a topographic map of the Alps, you see clearly long, parallel east-west bands running along the mountains. If you think of the way the metal crumples up in a car crash, that's a pretty good analogy to the landform of the Alps. You see the land bunched up into these big, massive folds running perpendicular to the direction of force. Generally speaking, the Italian face of the Alps is steeper and more well-defined, while the northern ridges of the mountains and hills spread off into the northern plain, separated by valleys and then plateaus and then plains. As a result, the Alps have a number of very long, straight, open valleys running along the entire arc of the chain. These valleys inevitably gather the runoff of the surrounding mountains and form rivers. More importantly to our story, some of the rivers flowing down into the valleys have themselves eroded usable passes up into the higher terrain. Ultimately, this process has linked the east-west passes with shorter north-south passes, creating usable routes through the Alps. None of these routes are particularly easy or straightforward, but if one has the knowledge, the Alps can be less formidable than they might appear. They are not to be taken lightly, but since prehistory, people have been making the crossing for trade, war, or migration. Of course, the Alps are not a monolithic uniform mass. All along their arc, there are gradual variations that explain much about the lifestyles and histories of the inhabitants. In the west, the Provence region of southern France and the Savoy region of northern Italy, the Alps are low but wide. A thick band of hills and mountains make up much of this region, much of it ideal for the cultivation of grapes and olives, those Mediterranean staples. It's only once you get deep into the mountains, fairly close to the Italian face, that you really run into the kind of environment you associate with an alpine landscape. Snowy peaks, wide meadows with wildflowers, and blonde women in dresses singing. This wide, low band constitutes much of what we now call the French Alps, though as you go further north, the French Alps get higher and narrower, and some of them are very tall. The Swiss Alps, in the northern reaches of the Alps, are massively tall, but shrink down in some places to a single ridgeline, a single terrifyingly tall ridgeline. On the northern face of this ridgeline is the Swiss Plateau, a wide, flat, fertile valley that separates the Alps from the closely related Jura Mountain system. The plateau contains Lake Geneva and the headwaters of the Rhone River. As you move east to the Austrian section of the Alps, the mountains retain much of their height, but spread into a wide band of mountainous country and are just alive with the sound of children singing Rodgers and Hammerstein. The height of the mountains, while remaining blistering by normal standards, gradually drops as you move east. Here two branches form, one running north to meet the Carpathians in Austria, and one continuing to curve south into Slovenia, where the Alps run into the Dinaric Mountains of the Balkan Peninsula. Human activity in the Alps is ancient. Some of the first archaeological evidence of the Celtic peoples comes from the Austrian Alps, though whether the culture was born there or came from elsewhere is a very heated, open question that really doesn't touch on this podcast. For the entire history of human habitation in the Alps, the Alps have been a route for trade, a source of vital resources, and a source of agricultural produce for their inhabitants. For everyone else, they were a dangerous obstacle. The Romans identified a number of the easier passes, built roads, and garrisoned them, and then didn't really explore too much beyond that. The Alps were never really firmly integrated into the empire, but so long as communications were open, the empire did not care much what went on with the people who lived in such a country. 
Despite this benevolent neglect, Roman culture did penetrate into the deepest parts of the mountains. As such, even the language of the isolated Romanche people is based on a Latin dialect. These Roman passes that I've just discussed remained the main passes in the early Middle Ages, but over time new passes opened and older passes declined in importance. The western passes, namely the Col de la Argentère, the Col de Montgenèvre, and the Col du Montsenis passes, are relatively low passes, but require the traveler to cross more mountain ridges. These are the passes that most directly connect Greater France into Italy, most notably connecting Marseille and Lyon on the French side, with Turin on the Italian side. The long Roman dominance of the region, combined with the relative ease of these passes, does a lot to explain the cultural similarities between southern France and northern Italy in the early Middle Ages. Over time, the passes through the Central Alps took on an increased importance, as here one could follow the labyrinth of relatively easy valleys fairly deep into the mountains and thus avoid crossing all but one real ridge of mountains. Thus, the little and great St. Bernard passes connected Turin and the relative lowlands around Lake Geneva. The Simplon Pass connects Lake Geneva with Milan. The Gotthard Pass connects Milan with Bern and Zurich, while the Splugen connects Milan with the key trade city of Liechtenstein. The Brenner Pass was the furthest east of such passes, and it connected the city of Verona with Munich via the Inn Valley. In the east, the Plocken Pass connected the Friuli region, which was dominated by Venice, to either Salzburg via the Radstadter Tauren Pass, or to the east via the Dava River. The Seifnitz Pass connected to the Sava River, as does the Postona Gate. We should note that the Postona Gate is the conventional dividing line between the Alps proper and the Dinaric Mountains. Passing down the Sava River will bring you to a city that is the capital of Slovenia, a city with far too many consonants for its own good. Okay, here goes. Ljubljana. Ljubljana. That may not sound bad, but there's a lot of soft J's in there. Anyway, Ljubljana is the site of an ancient Roman city and crossroads. From here one could go northeast along the foothills of the Alps to Vienna, or move east connecting along the Sava River to the Danube and the south. So, quite an important little spot. The Alps are the largest mountain chain in Europe by any measure. All the other mountains we will be discussing today are foothills by comparison. As such, the Alps have been a major factor in the materiality of European life, since there has been life in Europe to have materiality about. From an environmental standpoint, they are the source of four of the continent's most important rivers, the Danube, the Rhine, the Rhone, and the Po, and contribute water to innumerable others. We'll be talking about several of these rivers today, although I should note that the Rhone and the Po are covered in other episodes and therefore will not be discussed at length. The snowy peaks of the Alps are basically just massive reservoirs and collectors. They trap moist air, force it to shed its contents in the form of rain or snow, and then slowly release it to the land below. Of course, animals and people have often struggled to make a living in such a region, with its thin air and bitter winters. Humans in the Alps gradually adopted a particular form of pastoralism, similar to that seen in the Balkans in episode 10, but with a few changes in detail. Differences are worth going into because there's a definite split between Northern Europe and Southern Europe in this method of pastoralism. To begin with, the people of the Alps have generally preferred sheep and cattle over the goats and sheep of the Balkans. Yogurt is far less important in the Alps, but cheese is far more important and is considered vital to life. Beyond these somewhat trivial matters, a noticeable difference between the culture of the Balkans and that of the Alps was the amount of contact 
both within the Alps and between the people of the Alps and the surrounding territories. The Balkans were long a border between civilizations. Their inhabitants were isolated by security concerns and the wild tangle of the mountains. The villages were often estranged, and the culture differed from valley to valley. While the Alps often served as a boundary, and while its inhabitants were certainly security-conscious and warlike, they have also lived on top of some of the most important trade routes in history, made possible by the coherent system of valleys in the Alps. This has allowed closer relations between those living up in the mountains and those in the surrounding country. As was the case in the Balkans, people in the Alps mostly made their living by grazing herds in the mountain pastures during the warm months and bringing them down into the lower regions during the winter. But because of the closer relations between the mountain people and the people in the valleys, the Alpine populations were able to drive their herds many, many miles to find grazing land during the winter months, often finding it in wetland areas allowed to expand by the collapse of the Roman infrastructure. Over the centuries, an interconnected lifestyle grew up based on the symbiosis between the mountain pastoralists and the agriculturalists in the plains below. Those who controlled the best mountain pasturage were often able to raise huge herds and became wealthy from the trade with the lowlands. These wealthy individuals came to control the majority of the land and employ their neighbors as herders, mowers, etc. But interestingly, even these magnates had to pay respects to the village cheesemaker. Podcast footnote. Really quickly. The traditional lifestyle of the Pyrenees is fairly similar to that in the Alps. The lifestyle in the Mediterranean islands is more similar to the Balkans. Meanwhile, the lifestyle in the Apennines in Italy is an interesting hybrid of the two. I didn't really have time to go into it in the Italian episode, and I kind of don't have time for a full explanation now. Some things just need to get left to the side. But suffice it to say that Italian pastoralists drove their flocks quite a long distance during their heyday, and made extensive use of the marshes around the edge of the peninsula. This had the interesting effect that Italian agriculturalists fleeing the plains to escape the Magyar and Saracen raiders often were able to shelter with the pastoralists in the mountains a few miles away. In many cases, the agriculturalists and the pastoralists would found new fortified versions of the old village now up in the mountains. Some of the villagers would continue to come down from the mountains to farm their old land, while the pastoralists would continue to winter in the ruins of the old village. Partly as a result of this, and partly as a result of the Roman past, there was a strong urban culture that survived in the rather unsuitable Italian hill country. End podcast footnote. So, culture in the Alps had two dimensions. First, the people of the Alps bore a cultural affinity with those in the nearby plains, with whom they traded and who played host to their herds in the winter. This has not always resulted in friendly political relations, but there are close cultural ties that are visible even to the modern day even in cities like Munich that are well outside of the mountains. As a result, the Francophone Swiss adopted the vernacular of the French, the Tyrolean adopted Italian, the Mountaineers of Slovenia adopted Slovenian. At the same time, the people of the Alps represent something of a cultural continuity. Across the region, there are similarities in dress, architecture, music, and, of course, agricultural practice. I'm sure a Tyrolean would be able to tell the difference between their own music and the music of a Francophone Swiss, and the self-conscious culture creation of the 19th century can really color how we're able to view much of this. But there is ample historic and even genetic evidence that the people living in the Alps have more or less been there since prehistory, and that they've been in contact with each other to a certain extent. The Romanche people, who live deep in the Alps, are a great counterexample that kind of proves the point. Because they are in the middle of the Alps, and they are not near any lowlands or pastures, they have developed with their own language, culture, and customs. That said, 
Linguists agree that the language that was hybridized to create the Francophone, Italophone, etc. dialects spoken by the Romanche people's neighbors was a Romanche language. So, to put that another way, everyone spoke Romanche originally, they just got hybridized with French, Italian, etc. And of course the Romanche are very much part of that great transalpine cultural continuity. Let's get back to Central Europe proper. For the purposes of today's episode, we can describe Central Europe as roughly pork-chop-shaped, with the handle of the pork-chop facing east and the delicious meaty chop facing west. The rib of the chop is formed by the Carpathians and is on the southeast, while the fatty layer along the meaty southern part of the chop can represent the Alps. For my kosher listeners, imagine this as prime rib, the king of meats. The same event that created the Alps has created radiating ridges of foothills and mountains spreading out from the impact, notably the Jura Mountains and the Black and Bohemian Forests, and they are mostly located in the south at the bottom of the pork chop. Podcast footnote. We are going to need to pause just now and discuss etymology, particularly as it relates to the word forest. As usual, when etymology comes up, I need to recommend that you go listen to the History of English podcast, as Kevin Stroud does a better job with this than I ever will. The short version is that forest originally meant an uninhabited, uncultivated wilderness. But due to Norman land use laws, the word in English came to mean a woodland area. Basically, the Normans wanted wilderness areas to hunt in, so they banned all use of certain areas. Since this ban included logging, and northern Europe is naturally heavily wooded, these areas rapidly became woodlands. As a result, the meaning of the Latin word forest shifted from a meaning of general wilderness to its modern sense of being woodland. These shifts take time, and so the old sense of the word was still fairly common when German place names were being translated into English by mapmakers. While a technically correct translation, and an admirable effort to preserve the German meaning of the name, the use of the old definition of forest has the potential to really screw us up today. That old version of forest is basically dead in daily English speech, and Central Europe really was very heavily wooded. So today, in today's episode, we will be talking about large areas that were forests, in the sense of having a lot of trees, but also other large areas that were forests in the sense of being an undeveloped mountainous wilderness. So, to avoid confusing you any more than I already have, I'm going to be using forest in the original sense as wilderness, and not merely a bunch of trees. If I need to refer to a bunch of trees, I will call it a woodland. So, for those familiar with The Lord of the Rings, Aragorn the Ranger lives in the forest, while Treebeard the Ent lives in a woodland. Yes? Okay, moving on. End podcast footnote. The Jura Mountains and the Black Forest really form one mountain system, but happen to be separated by the Rhine River. The Jura are in turn separated from the Vosges of Greater France by the Belfont Pass, and from the Alps proper by the Swiss Plateau and the Rhone River. If you look at the Jura, Black Forest, and Bohemian Forest together on a map, you will notice that the Black Forest in the west and the Bohemian Forest in the east are separated by most of what we would now call southern Germany, but they form a sort of arch with a missing middle. That is to say, from its southern borders along the Rhine River, the Black Forest arcs north and east, while the Bohemian Forest lies north and west from its southern borders along the Danube. Both peter out before meeting, but when taken together, the impact of the Alps can clearly be seen. So as has become a common refrain in our story, the impact of the Alps was the main geological event in the geological history of Europe. 
but there are some fascinating twists to this picture in Central Europe. The Hartz, Ur, and Sudet mountains are actually much, much older mountains, dating back to the same time frame as the Urals and the Scandinavian mountains. Much like the Scandinavian mountains, these mountains had been more or less eroded away to nothing by the time of the Alpine impact. Once that event occurred, however, these areas represented weak points in the fabric of the Eurasian plates. With all the stress the plates were under, the fault lines reactivated, and new mountains were raised to take the place of the old. These mountains make Central Europe fairly interesting topographically, but to explain this geography, I'm going to need to help orient them in your mind, so let's go back to our pork chop. Remember that the handle of the chop is facing east, and that the bone here represents the Carpathian Mountains. Now, if you follow the bone down to its southern terminus, that puts you right on top of the city of Vienna. Vienna is located between the Alps and the Carpathians. Now, the Bohemian Forest that we just discussed is only a few miles north of Vienna, and runs northwest from there, so sort of opposite of the bone of the pork chop. The Ore Mountains start a few miles north of the end of the Bohemian Forest, separated by a small tumbled hill country, and then run northeast, paralleling the Carpathian Mountains. The northern tip of the Ore Mountains is in turn very close to the northern end of the Sudet Mountains, separated by the Elbe River Valley. The Sudet Mountains then run southeast, back towards the Carpathians, and are separated from the Carpathians only by the headwaters of the Elbe River. So when you put all that together, you start in Vienna and go northwest along the Bohemian Forest, northeast along the Ore Mountains, and southeast along the Sudets, and then back southwest along the Carpathians and back to Vienna. These four mountain chains form roughly a diamond-shaped plateau, smack in the middle of Central Europe. The mountains that surround the Bohemian Plateau are not much when set next to the Alps or even the Carpathians, but they create a definitively unique space in the Central European landmass. They also make for some fascinating landscapes, places where the rivers that rise on the plateau cut their way out through canyons and narrow valleys. I have it on good authority that this landscape was used as the background for the climactic battle in the Chronicles of Narnia movie, though I have to admit to not seeing it myself as Lewis Carroll is totes lame Tolkien for life. Let's go back to the area where the Ore Mountains meet the Bohemian Forest, the area I said was a tumbled hill country. Well, if you keep on going northwest from the Bohemian Forest, you come to the Hartz Hills of the Hartz Mountains, also sometimes called the Thuringian Forest. This is a rough highland region right in the middle of what we would now call Germany, and the legendary home of the Saxons, about whom more shortly. So that is Central Europe. The southern border is the Alp-Carpathian system, with the Jura Mountains and the Black and Bohemian Forests as outlying foothills. The Hartz, Ore, and Sudet Mountains were formed at weak points in the surface of the tectonic plates. The Bohemian, Ore, Sudet, and Carpathian Mountain systems isolate Bohemia and Moravia from the rest of Central Europe. The Hartz Mountains straggle off of this diamond out into the heart of Germany. Between these mountains is a relatively flat terrain, more of that great northern European plain with which we are so familiar at this point. As we have seen elsewhere, it's the rivers that tie the lands together. Central Europe is a flat territory with good rainfall, so it has the benefit of a large number of navigable waterways. To organize the chaos, I'm going to group the rivers by the sea to which they flow, and give some idea of the areas they connect as we go along. So, in general, there are three riverine regions in Central Europe. The western basin, that flows north to the North Sea. The eastern basin, that flows north to the Baltic Sea. 
and the southern basin that flows towards the Black Sea. A number of the alpine valleys that we've discussed today flow towards the Adriatic or the Mediterranean via the Po or the Rhone, but north of the Alps it's these three that are really important, and that's the main point of our discussion today. The North Sea is the eventual destination of the Rhine and all its tributaries, a number of small coastal rivers, and the Wesser and the Elbe. The biggest portions of the Rhine drainage basin are actually to the south, where a number of major rivers, but chiefly the main river, are channeled into the Rhine by the Hartz Highlands. As it nears the North Sea, the Rhine splits into the innumerable channels of the Rhine Delta, most of which is in the modern state of Holland. The rivers whose headwaters are closer to the coast, on the northern side of the Hartz Mountains, tend to just flow north, ultimately ending up in this delta or directly into the North Sea. The biggest of these northern rivers is the Wesser, which rises in the Hartz Mountains and flows north, creating an important pass at the modern city of Kessel. The Elbe River has a much more dramatic course, rising on the northern Bohemian Plain, flowing through a small gap between the Ore and the Sudate Mountains, before flowing northwest and emerging at an angle where Jutland emerges from mainland Europe. Along its route, it passes Dresden, Wittenberg, and Hamburg, many, many tributaries connected to the cities of Prague, Leipzig, Berlin, and Potsdam. In the eastern Baltic Basin, there are innumerable small rivers, but the Oder and Vistula rivers are the most important. The Oder rises from the juncture of the Sudate and Carpathian Mountains and flows northwest for two-thirds of its length before turning north. The Vistula River rises very near the Oder, but then flows nearly due east for many miles before slowly turning north. Flowing to the Black Sea is one river. It's kind of special. You may have heard of it. The Danube. Just saying. The Danube arises a few miles north of the headwaters of the Rhine and flows east, skirting the northern hills of the Alps until it passes between the Alps and the Bohemian Forest. It then passes south to the city of Vienna and passes between the Carpathians and the Alps and out into the Balkans. As we've already discussed in this podcast, the Danube has been a highway for trade, travel, and war since prehistory, and it will play an important role in our story. The most important tributary of the Danube for our purposes is the Morava River, which drains to the Danube out of the southern point of the diamond-shaped Bohemian Plateau, creating a wide pass. The drainage basin of the Morava is more or less coterminous with the Moravian region of the modern Czech Republic. In the north, near the coast, the landscape tends to be sandy and marshy and very, very, very flat. In the south, the land is hillier, but north or south, the entire area was historically heavily wooded a western extension of the great northern forests of Eastern Europe. How heavily Central Europe was wooded in the Middle Ages is actually a subject of somewhat violent debate. This is because, in the 19th century, certain romantic myths about the origins of the Germanic nation became tied up in the idea that they were a forest people. In recent years, the factuality of many of these myths has begun to be re-examined leading to earnest debate between different groups of historians and angry, vituperative debate between different groups of laymen. Much like blue-collar cops from New York City, foundational national myths die hard. My research shows that humans have practiced agriculture in the area for millennia, so Roman tales of unbroken forests are clear exaggerations. But Central Europe probably did enter the Middle Ages much more heavily wooded than the areas to the west, if only because of the uncertainties of the migration period and the different types of urbanism and agriculture practiced. Archaeologists have put a lot of effort into trying to pin down the traditional lifestyle of the Germanic tribes, and when they became settled agriculturalists. 
The latest evidence is that at the time of the fall of the Roman Empire, they lived in small homesteads or even on single-family farms, fairly well spread out. They seem to have practiced crop rotation early, allowing them to farm cleared woodland without exhausting the soil. How much of this was local innovation, and how much was the result of close cultural contact with the Roman Empire, is an open question, but it should be noted that some aspects of German agricultural practice were superior to Roman practice. So, the story of the Germans as a people from the forest, which was and is loved by some far-right groups, was probably untrue. The Germans were not elves, running naked before the stars in a twilight paradise. Still, Central Europe was an extension of the great Eastern European woodland, and as human influence waxed and waned, so did the woods. It should also be remembered that this was a pre-industrial era. There were no chainsaws. Wood had to be either cut down by hand with an axe, or burned down. As wood was a fairly valuable commodity, burnings were not necessarily the first choice people made, so the clearance of woodland could be a pretty painstaking process. Though human settlement gradually did encroach on the woods, it wasn't until the 19th century that the landscape was really stripped bare and deforested. Not coincidentally, the 19th century was the same period when German authors began waxing nostalgic about the forests of Germany's noble past. Today, after some rather extensive reforestation, Germany is about 30% wooded. The internet says that Germany in the Middle Ages was about 70% wooded, but I'm really uncertain about the veracity of that claim. Rather than spend gobs of time and money to track down a more reliable figure, let's say that, whatever the land use percentage, travel was limited to the rivers, and thick woodland areas separated most settlements. But that's not to say that people ran naked in a twilight paradise. Sources for traditional Polish land cover are even harder to verify than German ones. The Slavs did traditionally practice slash-and-burn agriculture rather than the more settled Germano-Roman practice, but whether the specific Slavs that had moved into Poland continued the traditional practice, I'm not sure. I tend to think they did, as the Primpit marshes that birthed the Slavs were only a stone's throw away from the Polish heartlands, but sources are thin. If anyone has any access to any sources on the subject, I'm really curious to learn more. I will say with some certainty that the Baltic coast was very heavily wooded, based on historic accounts from later periods, specifically during the Northern Crusades. This could be a little bit anachronistic, we're talking about different time periods, but I think I'm comfortable with the idea that if it was heavily wooded later, it was probably heavily wooded before. So it's my guess that Poland at the time was fairly heavily wooded, and the people in the region were either still practicing slash-and-burn agriculture, or were still in the process of abandoning it. This, however, is a guess. At any rate, the way the inhabitants of this region interacted with their environment depended to a large extent on the level of political and technological development that they had reached. As the Germanic tribes were brought into the Frankish Empire, their traditional way of life was hybridized with the early feudal social structures of the Frankish West. More urban patterns of life were established that hybridized Roman practice with local traditions, and small settlements became villages, and villages became towns surrounded by cleared areas. The Slavs probably continued with their slash-and-burn lifestyle for much of this period, but we will be hearing a bit more about this later. For now, let us simply note that woodlands were economically vital to the people of the Middle Ages, even the settled ones. So, the first few generations of Germans to adopt the hybrid Franco-Roman lifestyle of the Carolingian Empire found themselves in a rather enviable position, at least after the Vikings were driven off. 
Their settlements were connected by easy trade routes on the rivers, and woodland products were readily available, which were very valuable to trade. Due to the combination of local practice with the new techniques and technologies bequeathed by their Romanized Frankish lords, the Germanic societies were able to begin producing the kind of surpluses that can support a specialized population. People were no longer just warriors or farmers, but we see miners, fishers, merchants, millers, bakers, spinners, weavers, and the beginnings of industrial practice in the early German towns or cities. How much of this existed before can be difficult to say. The evidence we have of the Celtic people in the Alps is evidence from a mine. So some of what we might call industrial practices had existed before, even in terms that we might call specialization. But the specific form that was taking shape during this post-Roman early medieval period was fairly new, and would be fairly familiar to a modern observer as a sort of post-Roman urbanism. So even as the cities of the West and South were in seemingly terminal decline, new foundations were taking hold in Germany. In the same period, there were well-established cities along the Baltic coast, but urbanization was fairly limited in the Polish interior. We know that the Piast dynasty had secured its hold by building extensive fortified settlements to consolidate their rule, and it's possible that this was part of a shift to settled agriculture. The fortifications seem to have been akin to Celtic hill forts, so it's possible that a similar economic model pertained, but again, my sources are really sketchy, so going any further would be very speculative. Let's begin to talk about how these people organized themselves politically. Today this region contains all or portions of the states of Holland, Germany, Switzerland, Austria, Poland, the Czech Republic, Slovenia, and Slovakia. In the Middle Ages, the main political entities of the region were the Holy Roman Empire, the Baltic states, the Bohemian and Moravian kingdoms, and the Piast dynasty of what we would now call Poland. The boundaries between these groups were clear to everyone at the time, but they shifted greatly over the course of the Middle Ages. Within these regions, things were even harder to pin down. Of course, the territories of the Holy Roman Empire were notoriously complex, but things were possibly even less settled in what we would today call Poland. No two sources that I have consulted have really agreed on any kind of regional system in Poland, partly as a result of the shifting loyalties and possessions of the people involved in the centuries-long civil war that we will get to in a minute. So today, I'm going to focus on reviewing the regions as they would stand in 1300, but do keep in mind that these regions were in a state of wild flux, as I will explain further as we go. Let's start by talking about the larger regional entities, the territories of the Holy Roman Empire and the Piast dynasty. Essentially, the Piast dynasty held the territory of the handle of our pork chop, that great corridor between the Baltic and the Carpathians that I discussed in the episodes on Eastern Europe. Let's draw the line between these two great political spheres at the Oder River, though in reality the borders were maybe a little bit to the west, but let's keep this simple. The Piast dynasty's other borders were the Carpathians in the south, wherever the borders with the Kievan Rus were that week in the east, and, theoretically, the Baltic in the north. Of course, the northern territories were almost always in a state of revolt, but we will come back to the internal politics of the Piast dynasty in a few minutes. The borders of the Holy Roman Empire were seriously complex. The outline was set early because of the unique, you might call it federal constitution of feudal political entities. These were not, strictly speaking, actual borders in the way we might think of them. They were more like contractual borders. So in the west, the borders included a band a hundred miles or so beyond the Rhine River into greater France 
which extended down the western side of the Alps to include Burgundy within the Empire. As we discussed way back in Episode 3, these regions, for a variety of reasons, slipped away from the Empire over the course of the Middle Ages. In the south, Burgundy would move solidly into the French camp, though their loyalty was always something that required watching. By contrast, the western bank of the Rhine steered an entirely independent course, favoring neither France nor the Holy Roman Empire. Gradually, this territory would collectively become known as Lorraine, a reference to the family of Lothair II, that short-lived grandson of Louis the Pious, who died of totally natural causes we swear, and who owned the territory before his tragically early death. Despite the area's practical independence, the Holy Roman Empire would claim these territories as integral to the empire, at least on paper, until the end of the Middle Ages. A similar situation pertained in the south, where the empire's real control over Italy was... indifferent, at best. We will get into the whys and wherefores in the next few episodes, but for now, just know that by 1300, the control of the empire south of the Alps was... sketchy. The situation was reversed in the east and the southeast. Legally, the Holy Roman Empire ended at the Ebro River in the north, and the Alp Carpathians in the south, and did not really include the Bohemian and Moravian plateaus. The Bohemians and Moravians were Slavic tribes, that initially were at war with both the Piast dynasty and the Holy Roman Empire. We discussed briefly how Arnulf worked to break the power of the Moravians, but after Arnulf moved on to other things, the Bohemians came to fill the power vacuum. Ultimately, the Bohemians consolidated their hold over the entire plateau, and held their own against all comers. Eventually, a King Boleslav struck up a genuine friendship with Emperor Otto I of the Holy Roman Empire. The two fought together against the Hungarians in the legendary Battle of Lechfield, and so Boleslav agreed to become a vassal of Otto in return for owing no feudal obligations of any kind and continuing to call himself king. As a result, the territories of Bohemia and Moravia occupied a kind of twilight status, neither in nor out of the empire. By 1300, they were pretty solidly within the empire, but definitely still enjoyed a very special status. Podcast footnote. Boleslav has a really awesome regnal name. Boleslav of the Terrible Feast. This was because he killed his brother, good King Wenceslas, at dinner one night in order to take over his throne. Apparently, he felt really bad about it afterwards. If you want to learn more about Good King Wenceslas, or his less good brother who had a really bad dinner party, or indeed most of the things from today's show, you should check out the podcasts hosted by the guy who did today's intro, the inestimable Travis Dow. He does both the History of Germany podcast and the Bohemican podcast, along with Pete Coleman. They are both really great shows. He also helped out a whole lot with today's episode, so thanks again, Travis. Terrible feast. Anyway, end podcast footnote. The lands along the Hungarian and Polish borders were very odd to modern eyes. Once the limits of the empire were set, the landowners of the border territories reckoned up their obligations to the empire based on the legally defined borders. But that did not mean that they had to stay within those borders. As was fairly common in the Middle Ages, the chief political entity, the Holy Roman Empire, did not have a monopoly in foreign policy decisions, or a monopoly on force for that matter. The martyr lords of the empire had the same power that we saw in their English counterparts, but even more liberty to strike and consolidate beyond the borders. As a result, huge swaths of Polish and Alp-Carpathian territory were held by subjects of the Holy Roman Empire, while not technically being within its borders. 
This would be like if the governor of New York had his own army and seized Quebec from Canada and refused to pay taxes to the U.S. government for the new territory. As we saw in the episode on the Balkans, the Hungarians were pretty successful at keeping the Germans off the plains, but in the mountains, the Westerners were fairly successful in their turn. Within the Holy Roman Empire, the borders became seriously mangled by 1300. I'm going to get into more detail in the next few episodes, but for now I just want to give a look at the geography. So I'm going to be talking about something called a stem duchy today. The stem duchies had their boundaries established early in the empire's history, in the 900s, and they were based roughly on regions held by the old Germanic tribes as they stood when they were conquered by the Franks. Though the duchies were cut up beyond all recognition by 1300, they remained as useful regional descriptions and in fact are still used today. Podcast footnote. This is another thing that we can thank Charlemagne for, or at least his dynasty. Before Charlemagne, most Germanic tribes would focus on expanding their territory. The Carolingians began to attempt to bring other tribes into their political structure. So instead of just conquering the Burgundians, Charlemagne beat them militarily and then declared himself king of the Burgundians, as well as being king of the Franks. This preserved legitimacy to a certain extent, and allowed for the Franks to adopt whatever machinery of state had previously existed, and then adapted to the Frankish model, which was found to be rather easier than burning everything down and starting over. It is also one of the 943 things that represents the beginnings of feudalism in the pre-feudal era. As a tack-on effect, the territory held by the tribes at the time of the conquest became the regional limits of the new territory and became, with some modifications, the boundaries of the stem duchies. They are called stem duchies because they are at the root of all the duchies and feudal possessions that ended up taking up their territory later on during the Holy Roman Empire period. End podcast footnote. Let's start in the south, in the Alps and foothills of the Alps, in a land called Bavaria. If you remember no other stem duchies in this episode beyond Saxony in the north and Bavaria in the south, I will feel okay and sleep well. A native German won't be impressed with you, but I will sleep well. Bavaria is wedged between the Danube River in the south, the Bohemian Forest in the east, and the Lech River in the west. I should note here that the Lech is a tributary of the Danube that flows almost due north from the Alps, essentially at the halfway point of the southern border of the modern state of Germany. Despite what might not seem like a particularly advantageous location, Bavaria was the home of a large amount of the early energy of the Holy Roman Empire, probably because of their ability to control some key trade routes across the Alps and along the Danube. Though Bavaria is home to some very fertile farmland, the Bavarians excelled as mountaineers, and rapidly expanded into the Alps, the Carpathians, and the Bohemian Forest. In many ways, they never really stopped. At the height of Bavaria's power in the early Middle Ages, their dukes controlled the entire eastern Alps, down to, and including, Istria on the Adriatic coast, and wide territories stretching into the Balkans. It was during this early period that the first Slavic tribes were brought within the empire, in what is now Slovenia. After the ravages of the Hungarians, as well as a few bungled Bavarian attempted backstabbings, the Emperor Otto I reorganized Bavaria and split off large chunks to form the March of the East, or Austria in Bavarian, and the southern mountainous territory of Carinthia, named after the Slavic tribe that had settled there. This area is now mostly in Slovenia. The nobility of these territories were all, to a greater or lesser extent, people who spoke the Bavarian dialect of German, and much of the population would come to speak the language as well. That said, Bavaria, Carinthia, and Austria began drifting in very different political directions after the time of Otto. 
let us linger a moment on Austria. As we discussed in episode 10, the heart of the old duchy of Austria is the city of Vienna, located in that bowl-shaped valley separating the Alps and the Carpathians, and through which flows the mighty Danube. Vienna is the only really convenient pass from the Pannonian Plain into northern Europe. This alone, along with its location on the Danube, would have made it strategic. But as we have discussed in this episode, Vienna has a lot of interesting things going on to the north as well. The Bohemian Plateau comes to a point a few miles north of Vienna, and through the gap formed at the point by the Morava River between the Bohemian Forest and the Carpathians, all the rivers of Moravia empty down into the Danube. Now, the route south from the Baltic, up the Oder River, into Moravia, and down into what would become Vienna, was one of the so-called Amber Roads during the Roman Empire. So Vienna's control of communications into Moravia had a key economic importance since before Vienna was Vienna. Vienna is also located near the mouth of a network of alpine valleys, formed by the east-west bands of mountains formed by the impact of Africa and Europe. So it can be said with some certainty that the Austrians had some trade advantages in the region. West of Bavaria, over the Lech River, was the stem duchy of Swabia. Swabia's western border was the Vosges Hills, which we saw back in our tour of Greater France. The sliver of Swabia between the Vosges and the Rhine is called Alsace, and was technically within the Holy Roman Empire. For our purposes, Alsace is in Greater France and not in Central Europe, but that is because of my use of the Rhine River as a dividing line, which is, as we have discussed, entirely arbitrary. The southern border of Swabia was well into the Alps. In fact, the modern city of Geneva was within the stem duchy of Swabia, along with much of what we would call the italophone parts of Switzerland. The northern border of Swabia was not located based on any obvious bit of topography, so I will just say that Swabia happily encompassed the Jura Mountains and the Black Forest. Swabia included the headwaters of both the Rhine and the Danube, and was where numerous trade routes to northern Europe came together. Those heading into Central Europe via the Rhone entered Swabia via the Belfonte Gap, which we saw in Episode 3. Those passing over the Alpine passes that ended in the Swiss Plateau ended up in Swabian territory. Those using the Danube and the Rhine rivers for trade passed through Swabia. At the same time, much of Swabia was very mountainous, and so, like the Bavarians, the Swabians were a combination of very wealthy traders, prosperous farmers, and tough mountain folk bound together by political and economic relationships. Podcast footnote. These two stem duchies, Swabia and Bavaria, have come to define much of what we think of as quote-unquote traditional German culture. Many of the more exotic rituals that we in the United States see associated with the Oktoberfest put on by local German cultural organizations are based on the cultural institutions of the woodsmen of the South. This is fairly odd, as in many ways the South is very different from the rest of Germany. I'm not a sociologist or an expert in German culture, so I can't really begin to explain why, but it strikes me as similar to the way the majority of the U.S. population lives in cosmopolitan coastal or rust belt cities, but many people continue to define the culture of the United States based on the culture of the Deep South and West. The war for defining the national character puts some strange things together, I suppose, no matter the country. End podcast footnote. North of Swabia is the stem duchy of Franconia. Many assume that Franconia was the true homeland of the Franks, but this is actually a point of some controversy. Without getting too deeply into a very complex issue, there is a fair amount of evidence that the Franks emerged from an alliance of the tribes in the Rhine Delta region, but since this was an alliance of different tribes, 
It's possible that the quote-unquote original Franks didn't even come from this region. They may have come from further south or somewhere else entirely. We're not really sure. It's possible they came from the northern part of Franconia, but certainly not from the entirety of Franconia, because we have lots of evidence that the Alamanni and Thuringians occupied that territory at the time. Early on, a group of Franks, wherever they came from, gained some status within the Rhine Delta region and got some official recognition from the Roman Empire and ended up expanding on both sides of the Rhine, laying the foundations of what would eventually become Charlemagne's empire several centuries later. Franconia seems to just have been one of the areas that this nascent Frankish empire expanded into early in its tenure. Certainly most of the evidence in the region uh, in the form of place names and things of that nature, is evidence of a gradual consolidation and occupation of Franconia by the Franks that eventually became permanent. Most notable is the modern city of Frankfurt on Main. Most people know it as just Frankfurt, uh, which means the Frankish Ford on the Main. This was a place where the Franks guaranteed a safe river crossing on the Main River. Presumably, if I were guaranteeing the safety of a ford on my land, my people would call it the New Awesome Ford, or Ben's Ford, or something. Calling it Frank Ford indicates that the Franks were probably coming in from the outside to do their fording at the time of the naming. This isn't the only evidence of the debate, and there's certainly much more to be said about it, but that's for a different podcast. At any rate, Franconia is characterized by fertile flatlands sloping down to the main river in the middle of the duchy. The river is actually called the Main, uh, just so we're clear. The Main flows from east to west through the center of the duchy, joining the Rhine near the city of Mainz. The southern border of Franconia is defined by the beginnings of the Black Forest, while to the north were the Hartz Highlands. Franconia was one of those places that was very in the middle. Frankfurt and Mainz were located on important trade routes, but there's not much to say beyond that at this point. So just so we're all up to speed, let's go counterclockwise, starting with Bohemia in the east, then Austria, Bavaria, Carinthia in the south, then Swabia, and Franconia. Good? Okay. North of Franconia was Saxony. This area, as opposed to Franconia, was actually originally inhabited by the people after whom it was named, the Saxons. The Saxons were conquered and Christianized in a progressive series of campaigns by Charlemagne that were notoriously bloody. This is often depicted as a genocidal campaign in histories, including this podcast to my everlasting shame. But really the people exterminated by Charlemagne were probably more the upper classes. Certainly there were a lot of them, certainly it's not good, but we shouldn't think of Saxony as being devoid of human inhabitants by the end of Charlemagne's time there. I still don't condone killing anyone, uh, particularly what were reported to be thousands of civilians, but once the Frankish nobility took over in Saxony, we see ample evidence of old Saxon legal traditions and cultural institutions, such as elective kingship, bubbling up from below. The Saxons will have a major role to play in our story, but for now let's focus on the topography. In the south was the Hartz Highlands, also called the Thuringian Forest. In the west, the borders of Saxony were a few miles short of the Rhine River and a few miles past the Ems River. In the east, thankfully, the Elbe River itself was the border, and in the north was the North Sea and the border with Jutland. Saxony was flat, fertile, and possessed of several key trade routes. The Ebro, the Wasser, and the Rhine all flow through or along Saxon territory. It was internally divided into a few districts, but one of the interesting ones was along the banks of the Ems River. 
this area was known as Westphalia. I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that Westphalia might be important to this show. Northwest of Saxony was the Duchy of Frisia. This was made up mostly of the Rhine Delta, and so we have basically already covered it in the episode on Greater France. It was marshy, heavily wooded, and inhabited by people who had an uncomfortably close relationship with water. I'm told by a small bird that the History of Germany podcast is about to drop an episode on the Frisians, which is going to be awesome without a doubt, so check that out. East of Saxony, between the Elbe and the Oder rivers, were the Marcher duchies established to guard the borders. In the north was the Mark of the Billelungs, then south of that was the North Mark, then the Ostmark, which means East Mark. These were border regions, and a bit far from trade routes, so they were heavily militarized without much compensating prosperity for the inhabitants. As was the case along the Scottish borders in Britain, we should imagine that the nobility got rich off of raiding. The fact that Berlin was at this time just a village in the Nordmark should make clear how odd Berlin's modern importance is in a historical context. So let's review again. In the east was Bohemia, then south of that was Austria, then down south of Austria and Bavaria in the southeastern Alps was Carinthia. Then on the north side of the Alps was Bavaria. Then Swabia to the west of Carinthia and Bavaria. Franconia in the west. Then Saxony in the north. Frisia in the far northwest. And the Marcher duchies in the northeast. Let us now cross over the Oder River and begin our discussion of Poland and the Piast dynasty. As we discussed in episodes 8 and 9, the Piast dynasty were the leaders of the Polon tribe of Slavs that had built a kingdom out of the chaos of the migration period. The heartland of the Piast dynasty was bounded in the west by the Oder River, in the south by the Carpathians, and to the north by the Notech and Varta rivers. These two rivers trace a valley that runs nearly due west, from the modern city of Bidogsges, where the Notek River is separated from the Vistula by only a few miles, to the city of Kostrzyn, where the Varta flows into the Oder. The east-west line traced by this valley separates the central heartland of the Piast dynasty from the mix of Slavic and Baltic tribes that had settled along the coast. The extensive river network of Poland would one day make it a valuable trading partner, but in the early Middle Ages, the political chaos of the region, combined with the hostile Baltic coastal region, meant that trade was underdeveloped. The land along the coast is notoriously marshy, and cut into a labyrinth of waterways and bogs. To the north was the Baltic, and, despite not really controlling their hinterlands, the Baltic and Slavic tribes of this region were heavily involved in the trade network of that sea and had been for centuries. The political entities that made up Pomerania early in the Middle Ages can probably be best described as half-tribe, half-city-state. Records as to their actual organization can be difficult to parse from the scanty, mostly hostile accounts we have from the Crusaders, but we have records of wealthy, maritime settlements with fortified cities, strong governments, and a heavily organized pagan religion. Given their location and troubled relationship with the Piast dynasty, it is possible that, as their opponents contended, these cities subsisted entirely off of piratical raids on the Baltic shipping, but I consider that extremely unlikely. The region is rich in natural resources, mostly amber, and it's possible that they had no need of their deeper hinterlands in the Middle Ages. We know that Roman trade routes had been heavily involved in the amber trade, so it is possible that these entities represented the distant evolution of old Roman trading posts, but it's really, really impossible to say what happened here during the migration period. What we do know of this region comes mostly from the accounts attached to the Northern Crusades, which will be the subject of a future episode. 
We've covered the Cliff Notes versions already in episodes 8 and 9, so suffice it to say here that an agglomeration of mostly Danish and Saxon knights got the Pope's permission to conquer the Pomeranians, Prussians, Latvians, Lithuanians, and Estonians in lieu of going on the Second Crusade. The Piast dynasty struggled to maintain its rights in the region without running afoul of the Crusaders and the Church. By 1300, they had asserted their control over the eastern half of Pomerania, but were left with crusader states in western Pomerania and Old Prussia on the east bank of the Vistula. Podcast footnote. I'm going to be circling back around to deal with the Northern Crusades in much more detail in a later episode, but if you can't get enough of stories about the Baltic, you may be in luck. Christophs Andresens is from Latvia, and he has embarked on a project called the Eastern Border Podcast about the, let's say, 20th century history of Latvia. Given Latvia's somewhat precarious position vis-a-vis Russia, the series is somewhat in line with my own series in the sense that it is very much about trying to figure out what is a Europe. He is seven episodes in at the time of writing, and they are really fascinating. If you've ever wanted to look at the Cold War from the point of view of the unwilling participants on the other side, this is a great resource and one I highly recommend. End podcast footnote. To the south of Pomerania is the heartland of the Piast dynasty, the land between the Oder and Vistula rivers. The southern part of this region is a highland as the land rises to meet the Carpathian Mountains. For the most part, the rise of the land here is very gradual, and so the perception of anyone walking around would be of flat lands. Still, the topography is enough to separate the sources of the Vistula and the Oder rivers, which both rise quite near each other in the Carpathian foothills near the borders of Bohemia. From this heartland, the Polans controlled huge swaths of territory in the Middle Ages, from beyond the Oder River in the west to the borders of Bohemia and Moravia in the south, up to and including large parts of the Primpit marshes in eastern Europe. But much like their contemporaries in the Kievan Rus, the Piast dynasty was unable to maintain a centralized government. Border lords, who grew wealthy and powerful in their conquests, flouted central control and charted their own course. This was added to by succession disputes and the ability of the church and nobility to essentially exempt themselves from the kingdom's legal system. Starting from five internal sections governed by the five sons of Boleslav III, no relation to he of the terrible feast, by the way, each generation saw further subdivision and war. Interestingly, the monarchy was not abolished, as the various warring parties all represented members of the royal family and all aspired to the throne. They just ignored what the king said. As a result, the proper collective term for the political entity of the Poles between 1138 and 1314 is the Piast Dynasty Dukes or the Piast Dynasty Princes. At least initially, this chaotic state of affairs was not fatal as a result of Poland's location. To the east were the Rus principalities, to the north the Baltic tribes and the Crusader Knights, to the south were the Carpathians and a number of loosely affiliated Slavic tribes, and to the west was the Holy Roman Empire. None of these forces were dynamic enough to cause a serious threat, and most were as dysfunctional and internally divided as the Poles were themselves. But when the Mongols rolled through the Rus principalities, the Poles were face to face with a consolidated military force. The first test came during the invasion of Hungary in 1240. A small army of 10,000 was dispatched to raid Poland and ensure that the Poles were in no condition to aid the beleaguered Hungarians. Though theoretically facing an equal or even a larger force of Poles, when you take into account the military forces of the entire country, this Mongol army split itself up and wandered around Poland, sacking cities and despoiling the countryside. 
the divided Polish princes lacked any ability to face even this divided foe. First, at the Battle of Chmielnik, a force composed of armies from a number of different petty Polish princes gathered together, but it certainly wasn't all the Polish princes, and one by one, the princely armies gradually took fright and fled before the battle was even joined. You know, sorry Henry, I just remembered, I really need a haircut, so good luck with the battle, uh, we'll see you next week. Ultimately, some of them hung around to fight the Mongols, and the Mongols defeated this force by using a feigned retreat because they saw that they could never beat the Poles in open straight combat. Anyone who is familiar with the tactics of steppe warriors knows that the feigned retreat is the bread and butter of that particular combat system. So hopefully that fantastic lie made the people who were there feel better about themselves. A second battle took place at Legnica. This was a much more serious affair. Duke Henry the Pious gathered every man he could, including the Baltic Holy Crusading Orders, French Teutonic Knights, the Polish Noble Armies, a Moravian Army, and a vast horde of conscript peasants from the cities and mines from all over Poland. Essentially, this was the only time that anything like a unified Polish force had taken the field in probably several centuries. A large force was expected from Bohemia, but it failed to arrive in time. While even without the Bohemians this was an impressively sized force, it probably did not outnumber the Mongols by much, and it contained a large number of poorly equipped and untrained conscripts. Accounts of the battle are full of finger-pointing and name-calling, and it's really hard to parse, but it seems pretty clear that the Mongols again feigned a retreat. This caused the entire cavalry complement of the army to give chase into a smokescreen. The Mongols waited until the cavalry was widely separated from the infantry in, in the middle of this smokescreen, peppered them with arrows, and then attacked from three sides using a superior force. With the cavalry thus effectively destroyed, the infantry were attacked in turn. You can kind of imagine that this did not go well. I like to imagine that at some point the Polish infantry, holding their pitchforks and their large sticks, were milling around, casting furtive glances at the drifting wall of smoke, and nervously chatting. They started to hear a rumbling noise. One of them asked the next one over, Hey, Bill, you think that's our cavalry or theirs? I don't know, says Bill. Hard to see with all this fog. But Bill, that's not fog, that's smoke. Nah, says Bill. I think I'd know smoke when I... At which point a few thousand Mongolian lancers would jump out of the smoke at a full gallop. The happy conclusion of this story is that, supposedly, the Mongols filled nine sacks with the ears of the slain, which may be a myth, but it just kind of seems like something they would do, you know? Later, the Mongolian army reformed, dodged the force coming north from Bohemia, and headed south to rejoin the main army, which was very busily ravaging Hungary. We can't blame the Poles too much for not doing well against the Mongols at this point. Uh, the Hungarians didn't do any better. The clear lesson from this war was that the Poles needed to centralize, which they did attempt to do, but it had not gone far enough by the time of the second Mongol invasion of Poland in 1259. The invasion targeted one of the main forces behind the centralization, Duke Boleslav the Chaste. Uh, again, no relation to the bad feast guy. Once the Duke was targeted by the Mongols, all his supposed allies fell to infighting rather than helping out. As a result, none of the cities or castles of the region were properly fortified, and no one even tried to fight the Mongols on the field. The lands of the Duke were so devastated as to seriously undermine his centralization project. A year later, essentially the same army of Mongols attacked Hungary, 
and were so savagely thrashed that it seriously destabilized the Golden Horde's dynasty. The third Mongol invasion in 1287 did not make much headway, but that probably has more to do with the decline of the Golden Horde than the rise of Polish power, so yeah, these are not Poland's finest hours militarily. I should point out, before anyone starts making any Polish jokes, that this is all down to the political aspects, and not Polish people's capacity as warriors. From a cultural standpoint, Poland was an increasingly western-leaning land. We discussed in episodes 8 and 9 how Poland had converted to Christianity. It follows that in the early Middle Ages, clerics made a large impression on Polish culture, as I said, converting the Piast dynasty in 960 or so, and then gradually Christianizing the rest of the kingdom after that. This conversion brought in other aspects of cultural intrusion from the West as well, though initially ones that followed from religious sources. So, for example, architecture, initially church architecture, but then other kinds of architecture, took on a Western bent. The church also brought in concepts of hierarchy that was located in a specific geographic location. And, of course, the introduction of a large number of people like monks and clerics and priests and bishops who can read and bring in outside ideas will have an impact on society beyond the religious realm. It should be noted, however, that beyond some specific government centers, the impact of the church wasn't necessarily as widespread as later impacts would be. The situation wasn't helped by the church's ability to exempt itself from governmental oversight, which we've already discussed. As the Vendili and the Pomeranians were progressively subjugated by the Crusader Knights, German merchants began to appear, bringing outside contact and culture into the region uh, from a more secular side. These merchants found an area that was both economically and agriculturally underexploited, as well as being depopulated by internal conflicts and the Mongol invasions. This left the Polish nobility, potentially these German merchants' clients, with vast but unproductive possessions. The Polish nobles, in response, made it known that they were inviting Western European settlers into their countries, offering cheap or free land and attractive legal settlements. Most were allowed to live under German laws, which proved so attractive that large numbers of Germans made the move, sometimes as individuals and sometimes as large groups, organized and paid for by members of the nobility. Eventually, Poland was left with a large German minority, a German legal system, and cities built on a German pattern. Now, it's very possible to overstate the size and significance of this migration. There is increasing evidence that much of the urbanization of this period actually came from Polish peasants who moved into the cities as a result of increasing population density in the countryside. The use of German law may have taken place simply because it was readily available, in the same way that American municipalities adopt model ordinances wholesale just because it's easier. It also may have been that the nobility was already somewhat Germanic due to cross-border interactions that we discussed earlier. Much of the population growth in the countryside may have come simply from the increased agricultural yields that came from the introduction of Western technology and techniques possibly long before. Um, since technology is an idea and not a person, we need not conclude that actual Germans were physically bringing moldboard plows to the countryside. The new middle-ranked nobility may have simply imported or imposed the new techniques, or exposure to roving German merchants may have introduced a more successful method of raising food, or a small number of Germans may have come into the country, uh, been successful, and introduced the technique which was adopted on a mass scale by everyone else. For my money, there is evidence of a large German ethnic minority within Poland, whatever that means. So to me, it seems reasonable that these people did take up some amount of uh, Polish land grants, 
and then their technology and legal ideas spread through the rest of the population. But that doesn't mean that Poland was a German territory, any more than it means that Germany was a Roman territory at this point. What all this meant for the Polish nobles was that, although trade was still underdeveloped, wealth came from the land in the Middle Ages, and there was plenty of land, and now it was being worked in a more profitable manner. So the Polish nobles became quite prosperous in their turn. Central Europe is a crazy concept to try and wrap your mind around by any measure. Franks and French and Germans and Slavs and Swiss and Tyrolians and a bewildering array of people and places across the whole span of time and space. But there are some bigger themes that hopefully tie all this together. In the south, things are hillier. In the north, things are flat and wet. Trees ruled the landscape outside of the urban areas. The urbanization of the populace was on a gradient from the Romanized Germanic West to the unromanized Slavic East. The larger political entities were disorganized, but the Holy Roman Empire was somewhat better organized than the chaotic Piast dynasty. Despite the higher-level chaos, the smaller political entities, such as the Crusader States, the Kingdom of Bohemia, the Marcher Lords, were comparatively strong and maintained a kind of order. The economy was expanding, based on growing populations, agricultural yields, long-distance trade, and even what we might call industrial production. On a wider level, this is the last of the really geographically-oriented walking tour episodes, and so I think some review of where we have been together is in order. We started in Iberia in episode 3, and saw the small mountain kingdoms of the north pushing back against the Islamic south, across a landscape that was not ideal for trade. Many of these kingdoms had their roots in the marcher lordships established by Charlemagne, something we learned more about in episode 14. Also in episode 3, we learned about Greater France, with its rivers forming a communications network across the region. Paris sits in the middle of the network, like a spider in a web. In episode 4, we visited the British Isles, with their warring peoples and overseas trade connections. London's greatness owes much to its location, but England's power was the result of its centralization. The centralization did not prevent the border lords from starting simmering conflicts with the Welsh, Scots, and Irish. In episode 5, we visited Scandinavia, and learned about Iceland, Jotland, and a bunch of funny-looking peninsulas. We saw the spread of European civilization into climates that were hostile, and the resulting symbiosis between the Nordic settlers and the Sami natives. Trade in the Baltic was hard, while everyone was a pirate, but later on it became very valuable. In episode 6, I discussed the class system, something we will be revisiting in future episodes, while in episode 7, some guy named Travis talked about the most metal bit of medieval combat ever. In episode 8, we returned to the walking tour, with the first of two episodes on Eastern Europe. We got to pretend we were Vikings, and sailed across Russia. In episode 9, we got to pretend we were Khazars, and saw the arrival of the Mongols. Trade across Eastern Europe was very important in the early Middle Ages, but fell off in importance due to the Crusades. In episode 10, we toured the mountain labyrinths of the Balkans, learned about goat herding, and saw the Hungarians miraculously saved from the Mongols by a hobbit. In episode 10, we paused to talk about the fall of the Carolingian Empire. Italy and the islands were the big story in episode 12, and we saw the completely crazy series of tectonic events that caused Italy to form. In episode 13, we tied Italy into our story about the Carolingian Empire, and saw how Italy's geography made it vital in trade, but made it very hard to control. We also saw how the city-states of the Middle Ages had their basis in the municipal governing structure of the late Roman Empire. 
That brings us up to today, and our tour of Central Europe's mountain passes, rivers, and gradual cultural migrations. I've really enjoyed getting into the nitty-gritty of the geography of Europe, but we're not quite done with our look at medieval Europe. Over the next couple of episodes, I'm going to try and set the political context of Central Europe and Italy in the Middle Ages by looking at the way the political organization of the Holy Roman Empire was formed. So next episode, we're going to look at what came after the death of Charles the Bald, and in the episode after that, hopefully I will have enough research done to look at the reign of Otto I, who basically set up most of the early Holy Roman Empire's constitution. After that, we're going to get back to the class system and talk about the things that affected daily life in the Middle Ages. We have a lot more fun stuff to come to, and we're not even done with the background yet. I'd like to thank you all for listening again, and apologize that it's been a while between this episode and the last one. There have been a lot of unplanned life events, as well as the holidays and some unexpected illnesses. So good times. At least this January, I didn't have to buy a car. So here's to a better year to come, and uh, thank you all for listening so much again, and uh, I'll see you next time. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.